I actually caught one. I caught it on a worm because you guys know that that's pretty much all. You I caught a peacock? Shit, so yeah, caught wow. a peacock bass on a worm. It is a full no blast, full on shit show is what it was. Every every which way it went wrong. I would say the hotel is kind of like the fishing equivalent of a hunter's a hunter's cabin. And I slept in there because I got Mr. Snore pants one and two. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> the Tackle Your Personal Best podcast. Check us out on Spotify and YouTube. Brought to you by Digital 410 Media. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome back to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. It's been a while, but we got the whole group back together, including a new guest for tonight. But before we introduce our guest, let's say, welcome back, Jeff. How are you, friend? Yeah, man. Sorry. Sorry I missed y'all last couple, but I'm I'm back, and I'm freaking pumped about tonight. How's everything in Texas? Like a million degrees. <laughs> Same here. And joining us always, our faithful Co-host, Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, how are all things on your home front, sir? Not doing good. Staying busy, but doing well. Doing well. No complaints. Kid uh, racking up any more mountain bike scores in the old racing? No, he would have had his last race Saturday, but they had a band trip. <clears throat> so he and about half the team missed the last race for that. So, But but their school ended up doing really well, and he, he was one of the few guys racking up points for him. So, so he crazy. contributed. That's awesome that his school has a mountain bike team. Yeah. Like they it, didn't do that when I was coming on. No, I think if you're lucky, you had like a, a, a ski club that you basically got maybe saved $10 on lift tickets. But our guest for today joining us is Mr. Freddie Joe Farnsworth. Freddie, sir, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. How are you guys? We're doing well. Um, as you just heard, we're excited. It's the first episode in, what, two, three weeks that all three of us have been back together? So uh, things are going well. We're excited to talk to you, sir. I'm looking over uh, your background. You have a pretty interesting uh, coming up, if you will. If you don't mind, for our readers, give them the Reader's Digest. Where were you born, and um, what did you do after high school? Oh, well, I was born in Muncie, Indiana. Midwestern um, boy. What's that? Said Midwestern boy. Well, no, not really. Um, <laughs> well, well, I'm from Ohio and Kentucky, and this, I mean, we're basically yeah, the tri-state well, there. My, so, my mom's from Kentucky. In fact, my mom and dad live in Kentucky now, in Liberty, Kentucky. Nice. Um, uh, but my dad was uh, uh, he was a homicide detective. He adopted me, my father. My real dad, I really didn't have much knowing of. He was a uh, him and my mom got divorced when I was three, so I really didn't remember him much. But my the man who raised me, he was a homicide detective in Dallas, in, uh, Dallas Texas, Grand Prairie, Texas. And he always wanted to be a rancher. So um, after he married my mom, um, certain circumstances I don't need to go into, but uh, he decided to go to Wyoming and become a rancher. And I grew up in, in Pinedale, Wyoming small little town up in uh, about 70 miles from Jackson Hole. I can only imagine, you know, people say all the time, obviously Wyoming, Montana, that whole area is just beautiful. It's God's country. But I couldn't imagine 
going from being a homicide detective, seeing all the horrible shit day in, day out to going to be a rancher and just taking care of cattle and looking over beautiful property and just, it had to be such a life change for him. Yeah. Well, he was, my dad was always, well, it was funny when I was a young kid, he was a hunter. And then, uh, you know, so he really liked the outdoors anyway. And that's how he found Wyoming bear hunting. And uh, the people that were guiding him were ranchers and they offered him a job and he took it. And uh, the funny thing was it's cold as shit. Especially where I grew up about nine months of uh, winter after a couple of years of that, um, I still remember we were unloading a hay trailer. I couldn't have been seven years, six, seven years old. And I remember a police car coming out with another car following it. It was the mayor and the chief of police. <laughs> and my mom had walked three miles in the winter. Uphills, both applied to, yeah, applied to, for my dad to be the new chief of police in Pineville, Wyoming. So she took his resume, went down and, I remember my dad didn't even know. He was like, what? They're like, yeah, you're overly qualified for this small town to be the chief. And so then my dad ended up being the chief of police there for like about 20 years, I'd imagine. Um, 15 years, something like that. That's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Now, why did she do it without his knowledge? She, she just assumed he wouldn't want to do it? Yeah, because, you know, my dad's my dad's a roughy, tough kind of guy, you know, guy you know, split his finger wide open and put a bandaid on it and go back to work. And, uh, she just knew that he was not about it. She, cause he was doing his dream and she was like, my dream's over living on this ranch, freezing her ass <laughs> off all year long. And, and, you know, there's an old saying, everybody asked me, why you join the Marines? I said, Hey, go, you know, go live in Pinedale, Wyoming for 15 years and tell me the Marine Corps seemed kind of easy to me with all the winter and cold and working your ass off. Um, you know, they're hard people. There's still, still to this day, they're hard people, but as you guys know, you know, some Midwest and Ohio and Kentucky, there's some hard ass people there. He was pretty hard. And my mom was like, I ain't doing this. <laughs> Your ass is moving to town. How <laughs> and was- that's why they live in Kentucky. My mom was like, look, I lived in this damn winter almost all my life. We're moving back to where I grew up. So see, that's they, funny though. Cause find- my dad, we were living out in California and he's like, I want to get back to the east coast and be near the family but i don't want to deal with the snow so much like every other ohio kentucky and he moved to florida and that's how i ended up down here but, uh, is that where you're at in florida yeah i'm down in uh, cape coral fort myers area uh, nice my brother lives in pompano 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 yeah he's good he's he's a little rich bastard <laughs> how was that trend was the transition <laughs> as good as you anticipated going from wyoming to the marine corps did you find your life a luxury and actually have a little easier time actually no, it was a major culture shock for me. Uh, I can imagine. You know, I went get, going to uh, San Diego and, and uh, you know, I, I hadn't really, you know, I, you always think you're smart, but you're not. You're dumb as shit. And, uh, you know, meeting African-Americans and Hispanics and people with all backgrounds, people who grew up in L.A. and all these places. I was scared shitless. Well, a good a good indicator on that is that people can wrap their minds around how many people graduated in your class. That'll give people an idea how big your hometown was. Well, well, let's put it this way: I, fifteen of the kids I grew up with, we went from first grade all the way to our, our senior year. Wow! And my graduating class was nineteen. <laughs> I so, had six hundred and fifty um, in mine. So oh you, yeah, no, my whole high school at the time it was the largest at the time. It's a little bigger town now, but um. There was 111 kids in the school, in the high school. How about you, Jeff? How many in your graduating class? 
not quite 200. Henry? Uh, 42. <laughs> wow. yeah, You're all see? small town boys. <laughs> see, if I would have stayed in yeah. Kentucky, I would probably have been in those classes too. But I went with my dad. He moved to Columbus. And um, we went up there looking for following the money trail and ended up in suburb of Columbus. And so, yep, I had, mm-hmm. I had like nice five. There's five towns. It's a consolidated. Wow. <laughs> That's a consolidated <laughs> two hundred people. I should probably throw that in. <laughs> and well, that, that was kind of that was kind of same with our whole county. The sub the Sublet County is like five thousand four hundred square miles, uh, which is a big ass county. <laughs> and there was yeah. two high schools. There was Big Piney, which was our rival. They were forty miles away, and then Pineville, which we had Daniel, Cora, Boulder. We had like five, six little municipalities that went there i mean i used to work on the black butte ranch and uh uh aaron fandek and his dad i'd go out and help him feed because they'd feed they fed like 3500 elk as well as you know four or five thousand head of cattle so i'd go out and help them all winter long and we 51 miles on a school bus every day going there and going back i just i just had a funny thought of thinking graduation night here's a freddie's family the last name ends with an F, so that's not too bad alphabetical order. You got 19 people in the class, so don't have to wait too long. <laughs> Here's a, the, the cop set of family. Okay, you're in the seizure near the beginning, but you only got 200 people. So out of those 200, they had to wait through 187 people to graduate before they can get up and walk out. My first name ends, begins with an A and a B. The only person before me was Abbott, which means there was 497 people behind me that had to wait through <laughs> before they could get up and leave without being rude. <laughs> well, you're lucky. See, I, I didn't go to my graduation. I went straight to the Marines. I, was in, I, was in, I, I left for boot camp my graduation day, so... How long was it for, missed, for you, Jeff, between your graduation and when you left for the Army? 20, 23 days. 23 days. That's, I mean, that's just, a, it's tremendous, but it's also, I'm looking at it like, wow, you guys went from 12 years consecutively of getting up, going to school, getting up, going to school, and then Freddie's sake, he left for the Marines before he finished, and yours 23 days later, just like, your guys is you then even got up even damn earlier. It's just like you guys really never had any sort of gap between that until the end of your your military service. Thank God, we party now. <laughs> Thank you God, get- yeah. I would. I. I. If. If. I was a hellion. If. If I wouldn't have went to boot camp, it, I probably would have never went to boot camp. It was. I. I was a small town, you know, doing my thing, and I was like, I. I needed that structure. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know. Uh, if if I wouldn't have went straight to boot camp, I don't know if I would have. You know, I was all interested in women and partying and going crazy. Is like best thing ever happened to me. The smartest thing I ever did. Even my dad tells me to this day. The smartest thing I ever did was get out of school. Four days later, my ass was on a bus heading to Denver, Colorado, to the MEP station. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people who were would anticipate joining right after high school if they would wait three or four or five months, they probably. Oh, I know my nephew ended up not going. He spent four years of high school getting ready to join the Navy or the Marines, and then he graduated, hung out with his friends for two or three months, and then changed his mind. Yeah, hanging out will ruin you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you made it through uh, the Marine Corps boot camp. Where were you uh, stationed at after you got out of the Marine Corps boot camp and graduated? Oh. With you? I, I was first stationed at um, uh, NAS North Island at, uh, Marine, uh, at the Marine barracks there, you know, guarding the special weapons and stuff in uh, Coronado, California. I was okay. there for about a year and a half. And then I, from there, I went to Suicide Charlie, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. So, and then I uh, spent almost three and a half, 
four years there. And then I went to right, right after, I mean, literally a week after Desert Storm, uh, I went to Marine Combat Training at School of Infantry at Camp, back at Camp Pendleton at San Onofre. And I was there for four years. Are you looking, looking back, are you kind of glad you had that time stationed on the uh, West Coast before getting sent overseas? Just so, because as you're saying before, just the going from Wyoming to boot camp was culture shock enough, but I'm sure afterwards, then living in California and all that time, I'm, I'm sure you probably were happy that you didn't go straight overseas. You got the experience that, um, that whole side a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I, I made the fatal mistake is my recruiter convinced me that I was going to be an MP. <laughs> but you have to go to security forces first. And I didn't know that meant I was going to be a bullet sponge, but I just <laughs> had to do guard duty for friggin' a year and a half before I was a bullet sponge, um, which was the greatest thing ever happened to me. I, I, would, I wouldn't have been a good MP. I would have been horrible. Um, uh, so, yeah, being in Cal, you know, just the whole time being on the West Coast, you know, especially now, you know, I, I've been to – like 48 countries now since you know I've, I've seen the world of, of experienced things that a lot of people haven't experienced but yeah definitely and of course all you know california is uh, it's a whole two-headed snake itself it's mm -hmm. ridiculous out here um you know i'm i'm lucky i i uh i've i still stay with my roots you know i have i have place with horses and and you know and my, my daughters ride and we do our you know we do our thing but yeah california's rough <laughs> it's a, it's at, not Wyoming. That's for damn sure. Where at in California are you? I live in a, a small town. It's, it's it's called Horsetown, USA. It's about fifty miles east of Los Angeles, and uh, it's a little small town with about twenty one thousand people. They say twenty one thousand people and twenty nine thousand horses. So um, every every house, the whole town is all horse trails. You know, sure. all the stop signs. You have the horse stuff. Uh, you know, look, look, look at my place. You know, I got, well, I, I just had a baby, so I got 10 horses. Well, you know, we have 10 horses here, and we're fixing to have 11 horses because another baby comes in three weeks. Um, you know, but all the towns like that, every community, every town, the smallest property around here is like a third of an acre. So everything's, you know, like I have a couple acres, and everybody has a horse property and stuff. So it's kind of cool. Big couple of PRCA rodeos every year. And so yeah, it's nice. And, you know, but then I drive a couple miles that way, and I'm in, Weirdoville. Yeah, I lived out in Long Beach for three years, um, back in the early 2000s. Yeah. So after your time in the service, you came back and um, you went back to California. Did you go back to Wyoming first? Uh, well, when I got out, I moved to, uh, I, I, I went, my, most of my family, my brother and sister lived in Casper, Wyoming. Okay. Because, um, you know, we're going to college and stuff. Casper's the big, all 51,000 people, it's the big city of Wyoming. And, uh, so I, I moved back there and just commenced to get fired off every job I worked because I hated everybody and uh, eventually settled into being a truck driver. And I absolutely loved it, being on the road, doing my thing by myself, didn't give a crap about nobody. And uh, all the way up until I was getting drunk one night and a bunch of friends were we were all drunk and they were talking shit about some audition and they were looking for military guys or outdoorsmen to do this audition. And of course, you know, I'm the baddest motherfucker walked the face of the earth, of course, being a Marine. <laughs> and, uh, I was talking shit and sure enough, about six 30 the next morning, they were dragging my ass out of bed and I went and stood in line for three hours. And I was the only one out of, uh, about, well, about 40 people got picked to do a call back. And then, uh, 
about a month later, I was sitting in a, the Hilton, which is the biggest hotel there. And, and, uh, they were like, Oh, this guy's going to come in. He's going to ask some questions. He's going to, going to pick a couple of you guys to, to help, you know, with the military and be a part of the stuff on this movie called starship troopers. Fantastic. And, uh, and, uh, in walk, they'll die. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, and, and, and the funny thing I, I had just seen, um, outbreak the movie outbreak and dill was like had a big big acting part in that and i was like well shit no matter what happens this at least i'm you know meeting a movie star i didn't know he was a former marine or anything like that that was way before internet stuff yeah and uh i was like at first when i walked there because i parked my I, I parked my truck in the parking lot you know and it was i had to leave it running it was cold as shit it was like the end of march it was cold as hell so i had my truck running i went in had you know, cowboy boots on, Wranglers, you know, baseball cap. And and I, I walked in, I said, what in the hell am I doing here? You know, it's like a Ken and Barbie show, all these people working out, mm-hmm. girls with, you know, with girl stuff. And um, um, <laughs> I remember Captain Dye walking, I was all thing, but I was like one of the last people to go. And everybody was taking like, they were in this room with him for like seven, eight minutes. And I was like, oh, I'm just, I just don't want to be here. And I just want to get my truck, go do my stuff. I'm tired. You're like, all my years of hur- hurry up and wait are over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then finally I hear, you know, I hear Cap die. He's like, hey, Farns worth report. And I'm like, did he just say, fucking say report? Excuse my language. He was, you know, did he just fucking say report? And I was like, all right, shoot. So I just walked in there and friggin', you know, sorry for report his order. <laughs> Snap to like, and he goes, and he just kind of looked up at me like real slow. And he goes, Marine. I go, yes, sir. He goes, what unit? I go, Suicide Charlie, two guidons, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines. He goes, I fucking hate the 7th Marines. <laughs> I go, and he goes, you know, about face. So I whipped one of those out, and he goes, you know, give me 25 push-ups, and, you know, count them. And I stayed I stayed down at the 25 until he said recover. I got up, and he's like, get the fuck out of here. I was literally in that room for, like, 60 seconds. And I was like, well, I fucked that up. Everybody, thought, you know, all the Ken and Barbies were like, <laughs> Yeah. And then he just walked out and said, everybody get out of here. Freddie Joe, you stay here. Nice. And uh, that was pretty much the start of it all right there. What What did you do? on? What was your key role in Starship Troopers? Well, I, I well I helped, you know, with the training and organizing all the people. Of course, special, they call them special abilities and stuff. Um, just organize people. He'd go, hey, take these guys over, train them with the weapons, get them moving and stuff. And I was only going to do the, you know, the Wyoming and, and uh, South Dakota stuff. But about halfway through, you know, he noticed right off the bat, because I had just finished being an instructor for two years. I was an instructor for two years at Ring Combat, training, teaching offense, defense, weapons, all everything. And uh, he was like, dang, man, you teach really <laughs> you, you ain't afraid to get in front of everybody and do what you got to do. And I'm like, no, that's, that's what I'm good at. And uh, about halfway through, he got a movie called Rough Riders. And he was like, I don't have a fucking clue about horses. And I grew up, you know, rodeo. Well, and right up your alley. Horses and stuff. Yep. And he goes, how would you like to do this for a living? So I called my old boss and I ain't coming back. And came out to, came out to LA for a couple months, uh, finished Starship Troopers. And the day after that, I flew out to Texas and did Rough Riders. And then I got my first stunt job and my first acting job. It was a really good acting part in it. And I was hooked when the paycheck came. I didn't give a shit about all the other stuff, but the paychecks came in. I was like, damn, this is what I need to do. It's kind of funny how, Doors open like that inadvertently. You said you're out one night talking crap, and here you are auditioning for a part on Starship Troopers as doing historical stuff. 
Jeff through his line of work and previous job. He uh, ended up being a, a historical advisor on a short film called Walking Point. And now he's currently in pre-pre-pre-production doing historical um, stuff on a new project. And it's just weird how that that happens. And Henry up there, he's kind of helped working on a documentary that's coming out. And I've done some background work. But it's just kind of interesting, like, how you're just going about your life, going about your job. And some little opportunity opens, and you put your foot in there. And before you know it, it keeps on rolling. It's just weird how it happens. It's you know, the Marine, the, that, that, you say one thing, the military, that's a, a thing about the military is, is, you know, if I had a state of hometown boy, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't open that door. I would, you know, I always say, I always say this, you know, it, it, to, to young people, I say, I'll open the door, but it's up to you to kick it in. And if I hadn't been in the military, I wouldn't have kicked that door in. I would have been probably hesitant. Oh, well, you know, and I'd have listened to my dad. Oh, what the fuck are you doing? You know, being mm -hmm. an idiot. You know, instead, you know, being in the military, I'm like, ah, let's just go see what happens. You know, I wasn't scared of shit. I'm sure Jeff could uh, pitch in on some of that, too. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't I don't think about uh, the coulda, woulda, shoulda. I just go and do it and take it because nobody's going to hand you nothing. And... Uh, yeah, the military certainly was a big help with that. And, um, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of luck. I think I'm one of the luckiest guys I know, too. So there's there's some of that cosmic coin toss in there. But, yeah, I agree with everything that, that Freddie said. I mean, sometimes um, that, that you, you just got to take it. You got to kick the door in. And if you want something bad enough, you'll you'll go get it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say too much luck. Yes, there's a little bit of luck as far as the opportunity coming its way, but opportunity comes to a lot of people. A lot of people are just too nervous to try different things out of their wheelhouse. And so, yeah, you may have had a little bit of luck that that opportunity came your way, but if you wouldn't have had the, you know, the sense of adventure or the, the hell with it mode and just jump in and try it, you know, that opportunity would have been missed and you wouldn't be what you're doing now. And I'm sure, you know, Henry's kind of the same way with all the projects he's working on, you know, things come by you you look at it, it's like who here's an opportunity you can either sit down and say no nah, I, I don't know if i can do that or you say oh i can probably do that and you jump in and see what happens yeah absolutely don't you know, talk this, too this, much Henry. This, this helps too <laughs> well this you, helps too. you are Freddy's the pretty one in the group. not this one this i'm ugly <laughs> shit that ain't all it takes well, that's that's why you that's why they got you in the back doing all the stunt work <laughs> yeah yeah i make other people famous I had, <laughs> I've been doing computers for 18 years, and one of my clients, his son was a stuntman in the early 2000s, and he worked on some music, movie projects, and sadly, he he uh, lost his life to an injury. I can't remember what movie it was on, but that was in the early 2000s. Up until then, that was like the only real, you know, interaction I ever had with anybody whose family member did stunts, and I don't think a lot of people realize how dangerous that shit truly is, you mm. know, N not only, you know, maybe not at the death level, but... Much like uh, you know, professional wrestlers, every time you guys show up to work, you're, there's a good opportunity. You're going home with a sprained wrist. Something's going to be wrong. I mean, you guys take rough, tumble falls, and people just think, oh, they're falling on air mattresses. They'll be all right. Yeah, it's not, it's not true. Uh, let's put it this way. Um, you know, now I've, I've been doing it for 26-plus years now, um, so I'm coordinating and second-year directing stuff now. And I, there's one thing I always tell one of my, especially young stunt people, and I'm always telling them, they're like, well, what should I do? What should I do? I said, you know, I want you to do this, do that. And, and always remember this. If it doesn't hurt tomorrow, I shouldn't have fucking hired you. I should let the actor do it. So make sure it's big enough where it hurts. And, you know, it, it's 
I've been, I've done some shit that was, I, I've done some stuff now that, that I wouldn't, as a coordinator, I wouldn't let my stunt people do. <laughs> it was just too crazy off the hook, ridiculous stuff. But you know, when it's you, you, I, I can, I can control myself and it's hard for me to have somebody else do that for me. But yeah, yeah. Pain is like, like the Marines motto, pain is just weakness leaving the body and you learn how to deal with it and move on and go on to the next, but it better friggin' hurt. I mean, there was times I did, I doubled Colin Farrell on Alexander and there was times where I had to have two or three people pick me up and why I was screaming to put me back on the horse to do the stunning again. It was, it was rough, you know, but it's just, that goes with the job. It's, you know, and it's not, I, I tell a good thing too. It's not, it's, I'm not a daredevil. I'm not out here to, to push the limit to where I could almost die. You know, the, the hardest part for me in my job is, especially as a stunt performer is, is, is protecting other people. You know, sometimes I'm doing car stunts and I have cameras and camera crews where I'm doing horse horses are the hardest because mm-hmm. I got a thousand pound animal. I also have to deal with, you know, and I got all these things going on. So I have to protect everybody around me and more than I have to protect myself to make sure that they're all safe, you know? Well, and it probably sounds a little strange to people who's never done anything remotely, you know, what comes to my mind is balance coordinated skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing, um, in the case Mm -hmm. of Henry's son, mountain biking, there is such thing called learning how to fall. And if you skateboard, mountain bike, snowboard, surf, riding a horse, and you're doing a sport that includes a lot of falling, you do learn how to fall the proper way. And I'm sure that's probably day one of stuntman school is how to learn how to fall the proper way where you're minimizing the wrist Mm -hmm. danger. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it too is, you know, I tell them, don't be such a sore loser. Just give up. You know, a lot of people, most injuries happen like horses or bicycles as, 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 uh, all that stuff is because you're trying to hang on to it too long. I can fix this. And, and especially with horses, I'm like, once you've lost that balance, find your place to fall Mm -hmm. and look at it where you're looking is where your body will go. Just give up, you know, don't be such a sore loser and (laughs) live to fight another day. And that's, that's key to what you just said too. Cause you'll, you'll hear this, you know, you hear these stories, oh, guy went snowboarding and hit a tree or guy went skiing, hit a tree or mountain biking. Your body instinctively goes where your eyes are looking. So when you're riding Mm -hmm. that horse through the woods, Obviously, the horse is going to have some control, too, but you look in between the trees. You're, you're mountain biking through the woods off trail. You look between the trees. You look at the tree, you're going to hit the tree. And that's why you hear these stories all the time where police officers are getting hit on the side of the road. People are driving down the freeway. They're looking at the car, the cop, and not realizing that their car is drifting because your body will naturally go where your eyes are looking. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. So how long, because, um, you know, I know the people listening to this podcast, it's a World War II-based podcast, like, come on, get to it, get to it, come on, we want to talk about it, we got to talk about it, we got to talk about the Panda Brothers. Talk about Panda Brothers. How far into your career, until you landed over there at the Abandoned Brothers training facility? Uh, about four years, four, like four years, uh, I went off and did a movie called Rules of Engagement with dale and he was that was one where i really got to show because we were like in the we started off in the jungle and i got to show him you know how spend most of my time finding everybody lost and showing <laughs> that i could navigate in the jungle and and you know and 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 uh um so right after that 
Band of Brothers came around. So I, I would say probably four and a half, five years, I guess. Let's see, I can't really see. It was 2000. Was it? Nine, no, it was, it was maybe faster than that. I started in 96. So I think Band of Brothers, 90, was it 99? Something like that. Well, I know it premiered uh, two days before 9-11. So it premiered in 2001. So yeah, it makes sense. It would take yeah, 99. Because it was about 12 months of filming we did for Band of Brothers. And you guys did all and, that uh, over in Europe, right? Ireland. All of it was in London, yeah. and we did we did a couple weeks in uh, in uh, Switzerland, you know, with the Eagles Nest and stuff. So, um, yeah, it was long it was a long shoot, and I and it's hard for me because I, I literally the day I finished Band of Brothers, I flew to Morocco to do my first tech advising show solo, which was Spy Games. So I went out to train Brad Pitt to be a sniper and set up all the Beirut stuff and do that. So it was like. A, 16 months I was at it. <laughs> it was crazy. So were you um, actively part of the the beloved boot camp for the cast that we hear so much about when it comes to Band of Brothers? Uh, no, I was the part of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, you, if you watch all the behind the scenes, it's all me chasing those guys around, you know, with the Ron Livingston Diaries and stuff. And I was fortunate, you know, I had Buck Compton, Winters, uh, Livingston, Garnier, uh, leave guy. I had a bunch of those. They were all in my platoon. So I had a lot of the main, main guys that were, we were separating in three platoons, first and second platoon, of course. And then, uh, um, and then a weapons platoon as well. When it came to the boot camp, could you tell which one of the actors did some sport playing in high school versus the one that spent all their time in drama club? <laughs> <laughs> the, the finest school of acting. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, very quick. I mean, you could tell like Neil McDonald was, you know, he, he you know, he was a little stud dude and uh, um, little Jimmy Matteo. Matteo was a little badass. You know, he was always that, you know, that little little kid with a chip on his shoulder. Um, you know, uh, Luz, Rick Gomez, he was, you know, he, he could tell he had put his time in. Of course, Donnie Wahlberg, you know, he just, the guy yeah. has a physique like is fucking ridiculous. Um, uh but yeah, you, I mean, you could tell really quick. You know, the good thing about about doing it right, and I, I mean, I still do it. Is is I break them down so hard. It doesn't matter if they're an athlete or or they were the wimpy, you know, high school drama kid. They are by the second or third day, they're all just mushed. <laughs> their bodies have never their bodies have never you know been up three days with only a few hours of sleep, and even in that few hours of sleep you know you're interrupting them you know messing with them put them on fire watch or or you know just coming in and scaring the shit out of them whatever the heck it is as well as all the physical work getting up and you know doing a three mile run in the morning and then constantly just moving moving all the time you know that's not, that's not a normal it's not a normal human being's uh day sure um uh so usually by the third day even you know you even have neil mcdonald just like you know you can just see him just like oh i'm I'm broke, man. I, I just don't want this guy yelling at me no more. I don't want that guy yelling at me no more. I just want peace and quiet for five seconds. And uh, so, but yeah, I mean, you, you can all, I mean, just like anything in the world, you can always tell, you know, who who, who the studs are and, and who the uh, thinkers are, I guess is a good way of putting it. <laughs> you said that uh, you'd wake them up in different various ways in the middle of the night. Is there a particular uh, stunt or... Um practical joke or, or something that stands out in your mind that that pulled off quite well um no i just you know and what i'll do is I, i'll give them a sense of comfort you know i was like i'm not you know i'm gonna you know every 
you know, I'm going to come out and I'm going to attack you or I'm going to find you, uh, you know, and then I let it go for like three or four days. And then if I, if I have the ability to have uh, like, say a boot camp with the enemy, like say the Pacific, we had Japanese soldiers out there at the same time. And so I was going back and forth from, you know, I was the gunny. So I was teaching both. So I was going back and forth. So then by like the fourth day, they're like, Oh, it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm just going to sleep. Nothing's going to happen. Well, then I just brought the Japanese up on a, on a full frontal assault. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, they don't know they're there anyway. So they're now they're just like completely freaking out thinking ghosts are chasing them. <laughs> you know, that they've, they, they've messed with the spirit world. And, uh, and then you really got their attention. You guys you see know? the size of that chicken? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jeff, you have any questions? I know, like I was saying, you're uh, going to be doing a little bit of a historical advising on a project coming up. you have any uh, questions or uh, thoughts for Freddie? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know where that project's going to lead. So I think I'm the company commander in it, too, so there's going to be there's gonna be quite a bit of acting, I think. But uh, I think back to to the work on Walking, on walking Point, and I, I'm kind of curious um, – because we had a particular scene where, you know, there's only so many Marine Corps wool trousers that are in my ability to put on set for this one particular scene. And, you know, we're using all uh, original uniforms for this. So uh, get the guy all set up, ready to go. And, and it's a home front scene. He's coming out of the, uh, of like a staff car and just bust these trousers open. Right. So, and I wasn't <laughs> there when it happened. I was, I was off somewhere else. I mean, I was on I was right there, but I didn't see it happen. Everybody's running, get Jeff, get Jeff. Oh, we busted the pants. I'm like, okay, well, I got this, this, and this. Like, this is it, man. And I, I told him, I said, if you don't fit into any of these, you better start doing some flutter kicks while they're putting your makeup on. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Start getting skinny <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, and I was kind of talked to by, uh, by one of the other uh, co-stars. Like, you know, we are actors, you know, it, it is a professional, you know, career and everything. I was like, okay, well, I didn't mean to overstep my bounds. It's just, I don't know how else to say it. So I'm curious because I, I, you know, your, your reputation, of course, has preceded you. And I'm just curious. I, I, I'm not going to uh, say that I'll never have the opportunities that, that you had. I'd like to, um, but if I ever did, I don't know how I would handle when you start having some of these bigger people to have that kind of guts to just say, Hey, you know, whatever, you, however you treat them, you know, is there, is there kind of a sense of, I know how far I can go. I, I, I there, there's, there's a, there's a certain respect there. There's, you know, that professionalism that still exists, but I've got a job to do and you've got a job to do. And we're, you know, we're here to help each other. So I'm just kind of curious about that whole dynamic, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be tough. I, I always make sure uh, that I, I uh, tell production, let their agents know, let the actors know. Um, and I always have a life. I have a long chat and I, and this is one of the, a lot of people argue with me all the time. They're like, you know, you don't get out there more. You need to tech advise more, but I won't tech advise a show unless the director. And one of the main questions he asks is I do it my way. I will train these people my way and you will back me. And that means even if we have to recast and they know we have to recast, that's what's going to happen. And if they won't do that, that's one of the reasons why I may fall back, you know, for money and say, ah, it's not my project. I'm not into it. But, you know, fortunately now later, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of videos and a lot of things out there, the actors, you know, and, and I've, I've, I've trained, you know, of course, I've done a lot of Brad Pitt stuff and, you know, but I've trained, you know, I've been around Robert De Niro to the smallest actor. So usually like when I, I did old, like say Overlord, like Brad Pitt set 
said, uh, I forgot his last name is in John, uh, John, uh, starts with an M, but like Brad Pitt set him up. He's like, yeah, just walk up to Freddie and say, Hey dude, how's it going? You know, so right off the bat, he came in and I just exploded on him on the first day. And he was like, shit, I just got set up. But they, they kind of already know, you know, they know, but I won't, I, 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 I kind of got famous with a bunch of military people. My first show I did by myself was, was spy games and behind the scenes, I made a statement that actually a lot of military people that I've met and seen. And, and that statement was my job is to make sure when I walk on base or I see my people that, that I haven't embarrassed anybody. And one of the things I always tell all the actors that I step in front of them, and I'm sure Henry's heard me say this is before is that um, I can be you. I've guest starred in Spielberg movies. I've been, I've acted in, 20 show at least 20 shows and, and, and been with the you know scenes with Robert De Niro. I I can be you, but I tell the actors, you can't be me. <laughs> you can never be me, yeah. but I want to give you that experience. You know, you can't be a carpenter without having learning how to use a hammer. So I'm gonna teach you how to use that hammer. And 99% of any good, let's put it this way, thespian or actor, however you want to actress. They want, they want, they want, especially when you walk, when you walk on to teach them, you look like you're the shit. You look at them like I know more than you and I could kill your whole family right now and you wouldn't even know why I did it. You know what I mean? It's just however you want to do it. But you look at them when they look at me as a Marine or if I'm training an army show, when they look at me, they look at me like I want my character to look like him. Look at that guy. You know, I put this thing on in wardrobe. I look like a pile of shit. He's got his shit together. He's locked on. He's ready to go. He's squared away. So, I mean, that's the best thing to do. And I just, and another thing is I don't, I don't, I never give anybody my resume, meaning I don't step in front of them and say, you're going to listen to me because I've been here and I've been there. I've been this. I step in front of them and I talk to them like they know I've fucking been there and they know I've gone there and I'm going to teach them how to look like they've been there, how they look, how to look like they've gone there. And that's the best advice I can get. Just get up there and you're the baddest motherfucker on the set. You're the only, these guys are trying to portray you. So you just got to get up there and say, I'm the guy you're trying to portray. So you better pay attention to what the fuck I'm doing. Now, you know, the boot camps are really, sometimes you can't. Sometimes, I, you know, I do a lot of TV shows. I got an hour. Mm-hmm. I got an hour to make this guy look like he's a staff sergeant badass, you know. But I just, you just got to have that confidence. You know, you, you've done the training. You, you've been there. You've stood the line. So just always have that confidence. Don't let nobody, I don't, I don't give a shit. That's some of my downfalls. I don't give a shit. If they don't like it, excuse my language, everybody, but they can fuck off. I am who I am. And you want you this guy in this film to look like who i am so i'm gonna teach him exact the only way i know how that's great advice man i really appreciate that because i tell you i really think to uh i love watching the making of platoon and, and i think about all the stories that dale dies talking about and the guys talking about you know they're so freaking hungry they eat their own socks and john mcgillie's talking about he's, he, he's got to go to the bathroom he's afraid of steaks them bite them on the butt or something like all you know all this crazy stuff they've never been through and then i think like okay you know what if there was somebody that said you know somebody like mcginley or defoe like you know what screw this i don't have to do this i'm leaving i'm out philippines was cool i'm out 
I nailed out that's gonna be like so hey Mr. Director um hmm, sorry about that but you know what I'm saying like I, I there's got to be that line that's what no, I'm tell you here's you a here's screw a, up the project here's a funny story the only guys that will ever give you shit are the guys who just read that book that that's what they deserve William Defoe and Brad Pitt and Robert De Niro and and and, and uh Tom Hanks they won't do that because they are they're they are just they're that's that's they know that that's their life they 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 love their performance and 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 regardless of the way they want to say i'm not a method actor they're fucking all method actors they want to understand and i always tell them i said you guys have been tired but you've never been military tired you've never been marine tired in your case you've never been army tired and i'm going to show you really what it's like to be marine tired i'm going to show you what it's like to not sleep for three days, not eat regularly, not do anything, and then have to get up and actually do a full frontal assault or full envelopment, you know, left flank, right flank, whatever it is, I'm going to show you what it's like. And you're going to be able to perform that. And I'm going to take this weapon. It's like horses. You know, you get actors, especially actors. They're, they're a product of natural, you know, behavior and doing everything over and over and over again. You take a weapon and you get in their hand, they are fucked. You see the movies that don't have somebody to teach them. They're mm-hmm. just like, you know, they, they, they're horrible. They look like a whore in church. It's like not not right. Excuse my link. Sorry, everybody. But <laughs> they, they they just look not where they're supposed to be. So by the time I'm done with them, I, you know, I make that weapon a part of their arm. It, this You will not think about this thing. It will naturally go where it's supposed to go. So now all you can do is stand up and give me your performance instead of thinking about where, how your pack's going to be on. Why is this magazine pouch digging into my right fucking hip? And <laughs> nope. if my weapon is not in my hands right. You're just naturally going to carry it every way. And I also teach them not to do it exactly like the next. You see the shows, they talk about history shows. When I one of the downfalls I watch with history shows is everybody's gear is exactly the same. Everybody's mm-hmm. that I'm like, get the, you know, let's hey, that's not right for you. Move it over here. Show me something different. Put the Etol up high on your back, you know, because you don't like it on your on your ass pack or whatever the hell mm-hmm. it might be, you know, depending on what genre it is. Switch it around, and that's a good thing about boot camp. They learn that, oh shit, that's just rubbed me wrong. You know, Gunny, what should I do? I'm like, well, fucking move it, stupid. You know, <laughs> or, or just let yourself get rashed up. I don't give a shit. I'm feeling great about myself. I don't know about you. And I let them move their gear around and put it together the way they want because then it becomes more realistic when you see it on camera. And that's a good point because, like, when you're laying prone or you're in a foxhole or you're laying kind of prone in a foxhole, everybody lays a different way. And so, if you're the type of guy who tends to lean towards your right, having that canteen right on your right hip, that's not going to be a good spot. You need to move it over three spots over towards the center. So, when you're in your natural laying position, you're not same with the the first aid pouch in the front. And that's that's very that's a very good observation. I, I want to back up real quick, Jeff. Kind of what Freddie was saying. I think you're obviously your experience in the military. It's going to help, but I think your experience in uh, just historical stuff and being in uniform, and Freddie had a great point where he was saying, you know, see these guys get their uniform on and wardrobe, and they don't have the confidence to be in the uniform, and they look, they don't look the part. And clearly, Jeff, you'll, you've had the experience not only in modern-day uniforms, but in both Marine Corps and Army uniforms, and you'll definitely, well, one, you did play the part, but you know how to play the part. But I think that's a very astute observation because – Freddie, I did some background work on the remake of The Right Stuff, and I was in the mm-hmm. pilot episode, and I'm a living historian, and I got cast as a naval officer just to be in a background of this. And I like this series, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. It was actually a good series. Um, I yep. was in the background of the officer's club, and you can actually see me. I got a prominent placement back there, but I remember 
we were all milling around waiting for them to reset. And the second day, D was actually going around talking to the extras. And I was like, that's kind of cool. And he came up to me. He's like, did you serve in the military? I'm like, no, sir. I'm just a living historian. This is what I do. I spend my weekend in different military uniforms. But because I've spent so much time in those uniforms, I know how to stand and I know how to present myself. He just assumed that I had some minor um, military experience versus the other guys who are just kind of slouching around and just, you know, looking like they're just got another sport coat on. And so I think as a very astute observation that if you don't have, you know, three weeks of training, you only got two hours, just try to instill that confidence into them, you know, to look like you at least play the role, you know, put your chest out, put your shoulders back, stand up straight and don't just be slouching like you're just wearing a basketball jersey to the home game. Yeah, exactly. I you could, know, another that's thing. That's a great lesson. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Another thing that always helps too with with background and because I train the background as well because I don't believe in just training the actors. Um, um, another thing that really helps is I always ask them when I give them their moment. Of course, I, I'm screaming and yelling. I'm constantly making them look like idiots the first at least 48 hours. But when the first time I kind of sit down and and say, you know, actually I am human and you could be human too, but still be this badass. Um, I always ask them, you know, anybody here know anybody that was in, that has served in the military? Anybody here's family served in the military? Anybody here's, you know, grandfather? And I go through the whole thing, and everybody always raises their hand. Everybody, they know somebody, or they're related to somebody, or there's a family member, and I always say, you're here to represent them. Mm -hmm. And why would you disrespect that person? Regardless of what their job is, they put their shit on the line, regardless, whether they're a messman or, or, or a bullet sponge like I was. Their ass puts that uniform on and makes it happen because they're all all every job is needed in the military. So it's your job now to represent that person, you know, and man, that makes a big difference, too, because they start thinking about, you know, their boyfriend, Johnny. You know, or, or or their best friend, you know, or their grandfather, or, or or their dad, or their brother, and they start they, they get a little bit of pride in them. You're like, wait, man, I could tell my brother that, hey, man, I did this for you. You know, I I, I did this right for you, and that that's that's also a really good technique that actually gets into to the minds of them. Because I've never I've never stood I I was I was acting in a commercial uh, in a Modelo commercial. And they had these tech advisors, and I was a little bit iffy about the tech advisors, and and because they weren't really tech advisors, they were more just talking about the directors and all these background informers. And I had to do this boot camp scene, and and they were like more enthralled than watching me do the boot camp scene. So I was like, well, who the hell are these tech advisors? But um, we got to a point where we had to do it like a marching scene, and 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 they were out there just going through the numbers and I, and I said, Hey man, can I, you know, and they knew who I was, of course. And so they were a little bit intimidated by me. I said, look, I'm not trying to step on you, but can you just give me five minutes with everybody? And that's what I did. Cause these background performers were like, what do I got to do here? I've already, I'm getting paid regardless. I don't want to do this. This is bullshit, you know? And, 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 and even a couple of actors, one of the actors was a former Marine. So it's kind of good to give me a compliment when it was done, but I just set up and I said, how many of you, and they all raised their hand, somebody they related to, they knew somebody, whatever. And I gave him that whole speech, but you're representing that person right now, the person that stands the line, the person that's there right now doing the shit. And you want to sit out here going, oh, I'm, a, you know, I want to be an actor or I'm the, the. you've got to stand up here and learn. And you're getting paid to learn mm -hmm. how to do this shit. You're getting paid. People pay me. This is still this day. They pay me. Hey, man, can I, I, I got this thing. We can, you know, I'll, I'll give you so much cash you just spend two hours with me to, to, to unfuck me you know what I mean? so, you know i'm like but you're getting paid for free shit and you're getting and like, to do something I, cool 
Yeah, in like five minutes, I had these guys marked by the numbers, you know, counting it down. One, two, three. In five minutes, they were all marching. And the tech advisors came up at the end. They were like, wow, man, how'd you do that? I said, you got to treat them like, you know, you got to give them some, like, want to. Mm-hmm. You know, they they got to want to do it. And then it goes back to your question about actors standing up there. If I have an actor come up, and, I, and trust me, I've had one, and he tried to get me fired, I've had... I've had two. One, I just went and we just went back and took care of it. But one of them tried to get me fired and he got threatened to be fired off the show. And it was a big, big, big actor. And uh, he just basically, he didn't want to do it. Didn't want to do it. uh, You know, I'm an actor. I can, I can do whatever I act scared. And I just flat out said, you know, fine. But, you know, if I kick your ass, what's the problem? You know, and then it was like, oh, I can't do this no more, you know. And, uh, you know, if you're if you're confident in what you do and the producers are happy about who you are, they, they'll stand behind you and say, yeah, he's right. You know, you got to do what you got to do. Now, a lot of our core audience here are living historians themselves. And I've said this to young cats when we're at a reenacting event, especially at a museum. We're doing living history and there's a lot of public running around. I say, hey, while you have your that you're in that uniform, even though you never served, you're only, you know, you're only 18, 19, play the role. Because most of these people out here, a lot of them think you're actually in the service and you're spending your weekend wearing a different uniform. So while you're in that uniform, pay the role because you don't want to disrespect those who did serve modern and in the past because you're acting like an asshole in that uniform. Because there's so many people who come to those events, and Jeff can tell you the same thing. They just think, A, we show up and get in a trailer and get a free uniform, and B, most of those, a lot of those cats there are serving when in more often than not, yes, some of them are, um, you know, retired service members, but a lot of them are just people who are adamant about history. And so I try to uh, tell the people, you know, Hey, act right. At least, you know, until the public leaves and then you want to slot around and act like a dick, go ahead. But yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Hey, it's a funny thing. You know, you talk about history. I, I, I don't have the mentality and the understanding of why somebody's so enthralled in history, but yet, history is just not about what happened it's mm-hmm. about everything that happened so if you're if you're truly a historian you give a shit about it learn about who the person is that you're playing learn about where he came from that he had you know that he that he passed away on the battlefield and he had a baby sister or he had a wife and he had child and that'll give you a whole different respect you know it's it, 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 I, I never still to this day if i see even i see anybody out of uniform or something i'll still say it i'm like hey excuse me come here let's have a little chat you know i get it you're tired but unfuck yourself (laughs) you look like a bag of shit and people are looking at you don't do that now for those of you listening to the show in the audio format you're thinking freddie he sounds familiar where have i seen him what band rose you were the guy on fat boy you delivered a message and said come on fat boy and smack that horse on the ass (laughs) yeah man everybody remembers the horse not me That well, that was a beautiful goddamn horse, and like that—that that doesn't seem like the type of horse you would see in a battlefield. But that was a beautiful horse. Was that one? Now, you see that horse a lot in that show. He's actually uh, one of the draft horses, one of the teams. You see him a lot pulling wagon <laughs> the whole show. And I just named him Fat Boy because of uh, a friend of mine is a British Royal Marine, and he was a little bit heavy. Mm-hmm. And I said I'm gonna name my horse after you. And he thought I was gonna name him Billy, Billy Bud. <laughs> fat Boy. But I said no, let's go Fat Boy. And all he was mad as shit. <laughs> He's like son of a bitch. So you were the trooper on Fat Boy and Karen Tam, but I did not know this. You, uh, they had you playing a medic in the Bastone episodes. Yes, that that was uh, me telling them, look, I've been, you know, I was in, and they didn't give a shit. They just wanted my voice. 
um, it, when you hear it, you hear the medic yelling and stuff, and they, <laughs> they ended up cutting all because I was too notice, you know, noticeable at uh, riding Fat Boy. Um, but you do hear my voice a lot in Bestone yelling at you know as the medic get over here and get the guys off the jeep and stuff. So, yeah, I was lucky. And let's jump a few years ahead to the Pacific. When did that come along? Oh, uh, 2007, I think. I think it, it, it sounds about right. 2007, you know. Um, yeah, it was. It, it, I knew, believe it or not, I, I, when I was done with Band of Brothers, I knew there was going to be an island hopping campaign series as well. They just, but it just took like seven, seven, eight years for them to get it all lined out and go. You know? Now, as a Marine, how excited were you for that project? very plus you know i had a lot more experience and dell was kind of like hey look you're gonna run basically everything i'm just gonna be the teacher and you know and be behind the director but you're gonna you know set up all the stuff so i got to pick the guys um i picked a uh, angle code marine that had worked with me um i picked a uh, uh, av marine that had you know had purple heart and robert garcia I picked Sean Bunch was the Anglico, and then I brought my best friend from the Marines, who was a mortarman, best mortarman I ever known, uh, Bruce Whitfield, to come over and train the mortarman. Um, and I said, you know, because I, so I was really happy and excited because, you know, ninety percent of my work is Army. Sure. <laughs> it's like I'm a, I'm a Marine, but I'm taking advice in Army stuff. But I have, you know, I have this guy uh, Chad Bennett. He's spent like twenty two years in the Army. You know, so when I do Army stuff, I bring him over and, and uh, Dave Hutchins. You know, all these former army guys come over to make sure we get it right but um very excited you know all marines um the island hopping campaign is a very important part of our history you know and from day one in boot camp you're learning about iwo jima and you know you're learning about Barcelona and, and sledge and and you know you're learning about um you know all of them from day one in boot camp so when all of a sudden i get to do a series based on these amazing heroes it was like I was ready. I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was into it too. Let me tell you what, I was a vicious asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you kind of lean towards it a little earlier about, you know, if you have the uh, Band of Brothers DVD, they have the uh, little behind the scenes clip and they show parts of some of the crazy push ups you had them doing where they're all basically leaning on each other and the different types of stuff in the Band of Brothers boot camp. How was the um, Pacific boot camp different or was it just a little more, was it more or less? than what the Band of Brothers version was? Did you guys streamline um, it by then? It, it was different because of the story. You know, the Pacific didn't, it didn't like really start off with them in boot camp or, or with join the jump school. They were just basically Marines. there. So when we did the boot camp, we just started them off in the shit. They were in the field. So in Band of Brothers, we were in a barracks. They learned how to march. They learned how to do this. They got to do the weapons on the pavement. And, you know, in, in the Pacific, they were, we went to the field. They were out there getting, and we were in Australia, so we had trees attacking them and everything else trying to kill them. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, they were digging fighting positions within four hours of us landing on the training spot, you know, and they were digging machine gun stuff. They were giving us, uh, you know, uh, train maps and, and, you know, doing, you know, azimuths and stuff to get everything ready for a defensive position. And then uh, by the second day, they were starting actual patrols, going out doing patrols, which was – you know, in, in the jungle is that's a good thing. That's one thing Dale likes about me is um, 
I'm a very good land navigator. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I spend most of my time finding everybody that gets lost. Um, But they're doing that, you know, and they're learning that it's not easy, you know, it's pitch dark and, you know, and then, uh, then of course we had the Japanese there as well. And and I'll tell you what, the Japanese uh, special ability, the, 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 the performers, those guys, I mean, they went to heart with it. They went to heart. They, you know, they, 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 we, we, we brought over, uh, this guy, uh, two, two Japanese that we use on the great raid. And, uh, so they knew how we operated. So they, but they put them through like Japanese, like, uh, like they would take swords out and like, pretend like they're going to chop their heads off. <laughs> right? It was pretty scary. I'd go over there sometimes going, guys, you got to calm down. Yes. And it's unusual for me to say, we got to calm down a little bit. Normally I'm getting told, Hey man, you're going to kill somebody. But, um, yeah, they, they they actually went to the training, so it was really, it was more intense. Band of Brothers was more like a really boot camp, you know. You had sure. the, the the few days and the, uh, you know, it was. You had barracks. They went to the barracks every night and slept, but they did hard training all day, and they got to march. They got up, and did PT, and you know, and did all that stuff. But they had an actual shower. They can go shower and do their stuff. On the Pacific, it was more field no, they exercise. Had, yeah, they were out in the field and it was legit, you know, here's your lesson on a field shower. Take your canteen, turn over, get your hair wet, wash your hair, and then take your other canteen and rinse yourself off. Good luck. Yeah, Scott was saying, you know, <laughs> even though he did, even though it wasn't loaded, he said he was sleeping in his tent with his M1 right next to him all night long. Oh, yeah. Well, it, 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 there's another thing, you know, Scott's, Scott was a different one. Scott did the second boot camp. I did four boot camps. I did two with Dale. I did one with Dale. I did one with Mike Stokey, and then I ran two myself. Um, but Scott's was a little bit different. And and but there is something, this little Marine, a Marine thing in me, you know, especially bringing up Marine combat training. Um, I used to when I was a troop handler, I used to walk around, and if I can get a weapon from uh, from the troops, then it was thrash time for everybody. And they'd be like dead asleep, and I'd do you know stupid games to get them. And so I, I do that with the actors. If I can get your freaking weapon, you 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 guys are gonna die. You're gonna pay. You're gonna pay a price. You're you know. And yeah, he was petrified. Plus, you know, the, there's we're not in any area where there's crocodiles, but they think crocodiles. We're nowhere near the water, but they like there's a crocodile out in the bush and shit. But um, yeah, some crazy shit. I tell you what, there's some crazy shit out in them. You know, in the in, in especially in Queensland, out in the hills and stuff. So yeah, Scott was petrified the whole time. And plus, Scott, um, Scott didn't have any friends, so he he it was hard on him. Um, you know, Stokey pulled him aside and said, "You're you're the CEO, you're skipper. You got to be up here." You know, all the other guys had a hooch mate and a rack mate, and they're right next to each other in their shelter has and and they're doing their stuff. You know, and they're in their fighting positions together. Scott had a tent by himself which was not far from Gunny's tent and Gunny was bored. So Gunny would fuck with him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and that's tough, you know, going into a, a, a environment where you don't know anybody, you know, you don't know anybody there, you know, but you got, you know, you got Barenthal who's a fucking animal, you know, <laughs> that's out there and a couple of the other actors, but they're not really paying much attention to him because he's an officer and we're not letting yep. that, that, that camaraderie grow um just like in real life you know so uh he was out there by himself so scott you know it, it had to be tough with him because not only are you lost and confused but as uh you know anybody that's been to boot camp how you really start uh getting boot camp and and, and getting through it is 
uh, your camaraderie with, with the guy next to you has the same pains, the same cries, the same misses, you know, his girlfriend's not there and his mom's not there and, and you guys talk and that's how you work through boot camp. <laughs> but if you go there and nobody talks to you and you're over there by yourself, that's fucking rough. That's tough. Here's probably a question you haven't been asked in many of these interviews when it comes to the boot camp and the training of the actors. How many of them, or is there one in particular you can think of that experienced the worst case of M1 thumb? Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, I would say about probably 25%, 30% of they them. Just, they just don't and, listen. And, well, it, you know, it's a it, it, funny way. thing. It's, one time Dale was teaching and he was talking and he was teaching about them one thumb and he gave himself his own one thumb. Um, but yeah, you know, them one grand is a bitch. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you don't do it right, you're going to get caught. So, and a lot of them happen too, like the very first firefight and they, you know, they're already good. They're, they, they think they know what they're doing, but they've never actually been people coming at them and then they get excited. Next thing you know, we got three of them with thumbs all blown up and stuff. And you know, as well as Jeff and I do blanks don't cycle the way they should. They're hot, they're dirty. And (laughs) a lot of times you're, you're um, in the field making do trying to clear jams and (laughs) ejecting end blocks that just don't want to come out. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, it can be a catastrophe. Yeah. But that's how they learn. You know, like I said, they sleep with their weapons. They're, they're getting woke up at two o'clock in the morning with a frontal assault. They had to learn how to fire them and be safe. And, you know, and of course I'm watching them like a hawk and me and Gunny Whitfield and Sean Bunch, we're all just, you know, paying really close attention to them and slapping them on the head. At sometimes they're, they're not, sometimes they're just sitting there fucking shitting themselves. And you're like in there beating on their helmets going, just start shooting idiots. <laughs> you know, <but. laughs> Henry, do you have any questions? Yeah. So, Freddie in part nine, you, you actually played Captain Stanley, didn't you? Yes, sir. Stumpy Stanley. Lieutenant. First Lieutenant Stumpy Stanley. Yeah. I, I was glad. You know, I didn't even realize that till doing a, re- a recent rewatch of it at the end credit. You yes, know, sir. Freddie Joe Farnsworth, Stanley. And I, I was glad to see that because, I mean, I remember talking to the real Stumpy Stanley when he would call the house trying to get in touch with my dad. Mm-hmm. So couple times I got to meet him, so to speak, back in the 80s, but I was glad he had a representation in it. Yeah, yeah, it was, I got, I got the part because, well, originally, the the, the word was they wanted me to play Hillbilly before it started and HBO put a squash in it. HBO was like, no, he was in Band of Brothers, you know, he's, there's no repeat actors, no repeat actors, because it's such a, a, a legendary show, you know, they didn't want it to feel like it was a show. Well, and, I, and not to interrupt you, but I think that's a, a huge, great idea because that I think all of us and Jeff and Henry, we've talked about this too, especially when it comes to series this um, important or um, just spot on. It, it would bump you if you were to see, you know, a big name actor. Obviously, you know, they had the Jimmy Fallon's hidden here and there in the background. But right. when it came to the main characters, one of the best games to play now, 20 years later, is when watching all these other movies or TV shows, how many people came from Band of Brothers and the Pacific and all that. But no, I I kind of agree with HBO doing that. Where, you know, it would. Yeah. Because even to this day, I'm sure these actors walk down the street and people associate them with that person that they played in that, that particular series. And it would definitely bump you if you see. You know, if Donnie Wahlberg came into the Pacific playing, you know, John Battle, you're like, wait a minute, yeah. you're Lipton, yeah. that don't work. 
Yeah, and that was that was a point, uh, at which I got. You know, even though I was like, nobody knows who the hell I was. I was they if, if Fat Boy came riding through, then people were like, hey, wait a second, how that fucking horse get over there? <laughs> and uh, they could have put you on a big uh, German Shepherd as a war dog. Come on, Fat Boy, <laughs> let's go, bitch. Um, Tim Van Patten was very adamant. He, you know, and, and Tim, you know, he's an actor's director, uh, big time, a really good director, and he was like, you know. He, 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 me and him got really clo- very close on, you know, I'm very close. David Nutter is one of my best friends, one of the directors. And then Tim, me and Tim got very close because he just didn't, he never, he had never seen that either. It was just like, man, this gunny speaks and the whole world fucking moves. I, this is just as a director, it's like the greatest thing that's ever walked the face of the earth. And he just loved that, 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 that respect was there and, and, you know, the love and David Nutter had told him that, who I was and stuff. And uh, he was adamant. He tried to give me a small part, um, being a sailor. And I just told him, I said, you know, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm busy. I'm busy shit. You know, <laughs> it's not, it's the, I was already making enough money where it wasn't much more money to be, play the part. And then it just got to episode nine and, and, and that scene, uh, uh, which Henry will tell you about, it's, it's very loud. And when, when, when I first come onto the scene, you know, it's, there's, 250 cows above my head firing and then there's artillery rounds going off and explosions and I'm having a conversation with an army officer and Tim said look I've I've read like 20 people and nobody can yell like you fucking yell nobody can raise their voice like you can raise your voice and I really want you to play this part and I finally said okay I'll do it you know and there was the first scene I was in. I was like at the top of my voice screaming, you know, <laughs> I was like letting letting them know because, you know, it, it kind of the whole scene was the army was confused that there was only one company of them. There's like, where the hell's everybody at? And we're like, this is it, buddy. We're about to get up this hill and tear some shit up. <laughs> so it was a good well, scene. Well, and you had an Amtrak right by you, too. Yep. It was right next to me. And that thing was loud as shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just squeaking all the time. <laughs> Those old ass Amtrak. So, Somebody yeah, get that pretty, thing. And, and, it was, and it was it was an honor for me. You know, I, I think I told Sledge just once. It's just an honor to play somebody that that was, you know, that you remember. You know, how cool is that? You know, life doesn't get any better than that in my business. You know. Okay. Follow ups, Henry. Yeah, I mean, just <clears throat> the one time I remember my. Actually, my mom and dad were out of town for something, and you know, I was just a dumb teenager outside shooting basketball. I hear, I hear the phone ring, and I run inside to get it. And the gravelly voice guy, yeah, sledgehammer there. And I said, uh, No, sir. He and my mom have gone out of town. And so, this is Stumpy Stanley, will you tell him I call? And I said, Yes, sir, I will. And I, you know, I'd read my dad's book, I knew who Stumpy was. I heard my dad right. talk about it. Yeah, you know, forget yeah, he- the book. I mean, he talked about all these people, so I knew who Stumpy was. Yeah, you're lucky. You're a lucky human being <laughs> to, to hear that firsthand. Yeah, to have Snafu come over and decide that, you know, hey, leave the beavers on. I have better things to do. <laughs> Walk out of the room. That's not what happened, though. <laughs> it was in reruns. It's all good. And then he became Freddie Mercury. What the heck? Yeah. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. You uh, you got any projects coming down the pike you want to plug before uh, we get into the the few th- uh, um, things before we wrap up? Well, there, uh, there's a couple. Um, I got. I'm playing a uh, 
a real life character of Staff Sergeant in a in a I was asked to play him by the gentleman the story's about. Um, it's called A Man from Two Worlds. Uh, is Afghan Afghanistan translator's true story. Uh, I'm very proud of that. That they cast me to play that. That's a big part. I'm gonna have to work my ass off on that one. And then uh, Burden of Freedom. That, you know that's gonna come up soon. And that's a that's a really heavy Afghanistan hard hitting. And then it has a lot of the uh, about when they come back home and and, and the PTSD and stuff. Um, those are two major product projects i mean i got some stunt coordinating stuff and stunt jobs that are coming but those are the two major ones the man from two worlds i'm really looking forward to based on a true story and as always um when this episode airs head over to wtspworldwar2.com and we'll have all the pertinent links and ways to uh see some of these projects but we're gonna segue off a little bit a little update from last week's episode henry and i were talking and i made a mistake the snafu the faux pas if you will that i said there was a hospital chain named after an airplane manufacturer from world war ii nay it was a shipyard we're all familiar with kaiser permanente are we not not all at yes. once kaiser <laughs> The steel workers, right? Yes, Kaiser was a steel workers plant. And I'm um, going to skip over the history except for during World War II. In the shipyards, once again, however, history intervened, and America's entry into World War II brought tens of thousands of workers, many of whom have inexperienced and poor health already, uh, pouring into the Kaiser shipyards in Richmond, California, Portland, Oregon, and Vancouver, Washington, to meet the nation's demand of big Liberty ships, aircraft carriers, and the like. Now, Henry J. Kaiser had a problem how to provide health care to the teeming masses of 30,000 employees. Kaiser was convinced that Dr. Garfield could solve his problem, but it looked like something special was warning. The surgeon was already scheduled to enter active duty in the United States Army Reserve units just a few weeks later. And this goes on to tell a story, but that is how, after the war, they stopped making ships, but they continued with the health care because they streamlined this health care for these 30,000 employees at all their locations that now they went from being Kaiser Shipbuilding and Ironworks to Kaiser Permanente, one of the bigger hospital chains out in California in the West Coast. And so that was a little update. I want to make sure I got that right from last week's episode. So, Jeff, you've been gone for a little bit. Um, this is the time of the show where we talk about books we're reading. What have you been reading in your minimum amount of free times in between uh, feeding a kid and trips to the shower? Um, yeah, well, I've been reading my textbooks to get my bachelor's in history uh, and, uh, and a whole lot of a lot of Hemingway. But uh, I, I did want to talk about one that I that I haven't I haven't mentioned yet. And this is uh, it's called Gear Up, Flight Clothing and Equipment from Army Air Forces Airmen in World War II. This is a great and I, I knew we'd be talking a lot about equipment. And you know, trying to get stuff right. And if you're a dork like me, when it comes to the Air Corps, uh, this is a great reference book. Uh, John McGuire is the son of, uh, and I think that his dad was in the Eighth Air Force. I want to say, um, but just some really great actual photographs, and then you know, war photographs and actual photographs of uh, all different gear and equipment and stuff that they would, the pocket trash that they would have, and things like that. So. Uh, John McGuire's Gear Up. It's a great uh, coffee table reference book for uh, Army Air Corps. Henry, what have you been reading? Are you on the same book? Have you moved on to another one? I know you yeah, burned through them I'm pretty quickly. probably about 100 pages from being done with the first Ian Toll Pacific Crucible. Um, 
trying to get that finished. And I, I'll put in a plug for what Jeff just said. I have that book gear up. That is a fantastic book. But uh, and, but yeah, the end toll first line is great. Huh? That's a great trilogy. Oh man. Yeah, it's very readable. It moves fast. Yes. So I'm enjoying it. Last couple episodes, I've been talking adamantly and vehemently and lovingly about the lonely vigil of Coast Watchers of the Solomon Islands by Walter Lord. I'm just about done, and I cannot, you know, I don't want to spend three episodes talking about how great this book is. But, Jeff, I was saying last week, you know, for those of our audience who have read all the Guadalcanal books, whether Guadalcanal Diaries, about a Guadalcanal, you know, what have you, if you kind of want to get the other side of that story, check out the lonely vigil. It's all about the Coast Watchers, and it's, it's, a, great, it's a great read. And you really get the other idea of what went into um, all the operations in Gua- around Guadalcanal just because of the guys in Bougainville, New Georgia, Florida Islands, and uh, Guadalcanal. And the amount of running they did from the Japanese and the effort, the Herculean effort it was to move this. The, the teleradios alone between the batteries, the, the radio, the, the fluids it took to recharge the batteries was like 500 pounds just of the radio equipment. And then you had their food and supplies it took just to move from one hiding spot to another it took about 24 guys and usually it was the two one or two coast watchers and a bunch of native uh, recruits and what gets scary is as the war progressed and especially on bougainville and new georgia um the chiefs of these native groups they uh, started losing faith you know they've been hearing all this talk about how you know the americans and the you know, the Europeans and the Australians, they were the team to saddle up with. But as they said in this book to the to the uh, natives, it was just white man on white man crime. And after a while, the only white men they saw were the Japanese. And they're like, clearly these guys are the ones that's won in the war. And so it, at a certain point, these Coast Watchers were running because they're with one group of natives and uh, a little village for, you know, 20 miles away said to hell with it let's show the Japanese where these guys are at because they're willing to give us food and supplies. And so now not only are they running from the Japanese, but now they're running from certain, they got to be weary and top secret of like, which groups can we trust? Which natives have we lost? Which ones haven't we? And, um, it's, it's a pretty, it's a damn good read. So once again, for those of you guys at home, if you want to learn more about the coast watchers, it's lonely vigil, the coast watchers of the Solomon islands by Walter Lloyd, Mr. Farnsworth. Freddie. Are you saying Walter Lloyd or Walter Lord? Walter Lord, I'm sorry. Yeah, Walter Lord. Lord okay. I'll say I've read some of Lord's stuff. Uh, I think he did a good one on Midway, did one on, on Pearl. And yeah, he's a, he's very readable. That's got to be a fairly old book. I thought he 1977. Was published in the 50s, 60s. Oh, wait, okay, 70s. Yeah. And awesome. and the only the, the worst thing about this book coming out of the 70s, it has a really bad 70s watercolor style cover that like has really nothing to do with it. It's just some guys with binocular, uh, a plane, some palm trees, and a, like a native. So, you know, it doesn't have the greatest cover in the world. But, yeah, it's from the 70s. And as you are saying, Lord's work, and I was saying this last week, it's a super easy read as far as, um, you know, it's written in the third person, but you feel like you're there in the first person running from these Japanese or, you know, counting these ships coming down and all the craziness that goes on in this book. So it's definitely a good read. Now, Freddie, uh, you were saying earlier, you know, you suggested your actors – if you're going to portray somebody, learn everything you can about them and portray them with best of knowledge. And so I assume you you do the same. Uh, what World War II themed books have you read in the past or are you currently reading now that you might want to suggest to our fine listening audience? Oh, my gosh. 
<laughs> I wasn't expecting that. He wasn't uh, expecting an oral book report. No, the old breed is it doesn't get any better than that, so just go read that. Absolutely. You, you want to know what it was about? There you go. That was it. There's a reason why <laughs> it's so well-respected. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we wrap up the show, um, we're going to get a little in the weeds here, but Jeff and I were talking about this through text messages, and you know, we have a lot of living historians and a lot of young cats who are wanting to get into the hobby. And as Jeff was saying earlier, you know, when you're doing this, you really want to make sure you got all your T's crossed and your dots eyed and your Q's with the funny little symbol at the bottom when it comes to your uniform to make sure your authenticity is there. And I just recently got a new pair of service boots because I had blown out the soles of my jump boots. And then, uh, so I was bragging about these through the uh, group text and Jeff's like, well, I did one better. I got me some new Cochran jump boots. And, and this is why I'm pointing out. And I was like, well, you know, you got to be careful you're ordering them because I was on Cochrane's website. And when you look under their historical jump boots, they have brown synthetic soles on them and not the authentic rubber Goodyear black soles. And Jeff was pointing out that where he got his from, you know, they do have the authentic soles. And so I just wanted to put that out there, a little heads up for you, any of the uh, people out there wanting to put together an airborne impression. And you're thinking about, oh, you know, I want to go straight to the source. I want a nice pair of Cochrane jump boots. Just... Go through the website slowly and uh, make sure you look at the photo of the soles and make sure they are the authentic black Goodyear rubber soles and not the new brown synthetic ones because no one will pick on you harder than the other living historians at those events. You walk up with some brown soles boots that you, which by the way, cost more than the authentic ones that Jeff found through a third party reseller. So um, I just wanted to put that out there. In the past, you know, we've done a little bit of equipment stuff. And now, Freddie, you been on a lot of uh world war ii uh movie sets i'm thinking about soaking these bastards in some mink oil before i put them on to loosen them up to help cut down on blisters is that a good idea um because these things are brand uh, new i mean yeah we, we we had all the guys uh take baths with theirs on get them wet and then wear them around yeah. them dry out to, just to get them to mold to their feet i mean mike corcoran's gave me uh ingrown i had to I had to fly back right after boot camp and do a, a movie called Semper Fi for Mr. Spielberg. And I had an ingrown toenail. <laughs> they, they killed me. So, you know, yeah, I'd definitely loosen them up. Let, let them mold around your feet best you can. Yeah, I think in, in that uh, video, Ron Livingston said, oh, I have some people who played hockey or no, it's hockey or something like that. And he was saying, yeah, they told me to put them in the water overnight and then put them on to let them to form fit. It's that time yep. of the episode. Henry, game plugs to uh, put out there before we wrap things up. No, nah, my calendar's pretty open right now, so I don't really have anything to plug at the moment. What do you about you, Jeff? You got anything coming down the pike? Uh, yeah, well, before our next episode, this coming Sunday night, 8 p.m. Central, Walking Point will be premiering on YouTube. Yep. We are finally going to have it offered for free on YouTube and uh, we're going to do like a little live premiere where people were going to get the, the opportunity to chat with us and we can talk some of the behind the scenes and all the, the goofy stuff there. So really excited about that to finally get that out there and make sure a lot more people get to see it. And then, um, yeah, working on this, uh, this Pathfinders movie, uh, hopefully in uh, we're going to probably try to do a table read, hopefully before the end of this month. And then, start shooting in uh in july so uh yeah look for anybody that's got any uh any little info on, on stuff like that I, i'm open 
to, uh, to, to listen to their stories and make sure that, that we're getting it right. Cause that's important. We are portraying, uh, it's, it's the, the director's uncle, uh, that we're, that we're portraying, you know, in this film, this is, this is all true stuff. So we're going to try to get it as right as we can. And we're going to use some, uh, artistic, artistic licensing, licensing while doing it, of course. Um, but, and I just wanted to hammer in one more point too, that, that, that Freddie had mentioned before we go, cause I've been seeing it for years with Korean actors don't think that because it's oh in the dash 100 dash 21 yeah this is how they wore their gear mm -hmm. throw the book away because yeah if the e-tool was knocking you in, in your butt you're gonna you're gonna shift it around you're gonna change it you're not gonna wear the canteen the way it was always supposed to be on there you're gonna make it custom to you because i guarantee you there have been tactical tailors since you know ancient warfare and that's just how it is and i don't know how many times i've heard people say well you know, I never saw a picture of them wearing it like that. Well, that's probably because the picture doesn't exist, but it doesn't mean that those individuals, those customized individuals that hit the battlefield did not customize their stuff. I mean, I guarantee you there's guys on those troop ships with a sewing kit going, hey, hey, Mac, what are you doing? I don't like the pocket there. I want a pocket right here, so I'm going to put it right here. And I furthermore. Do that to my uniform? Absolutely. And furthermore. So that's you know, more to the reenactors. Yeah. You know, that for Hollywood. And, 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 and I agree with, with Freddie T. Van, you know, there, there's some things you just can't always find the, the, the original. You got to go aftermarket. The real stitch Nazis are going to know, but nothing calls people out. Like when they're holding a weapon and it looks like they've got two left hands and 11 thumbs. Yep. You, you, I mean, if you look like it's a foreign object in your hand still, it doesn't matter. You can have everything perfect. It's going to scream. Uh, this guy is not for real. So. Freddie, this is going to sound weird, but can I can I um, offer a suggestion for your future curriculum and historical base boot camp? Who me? Yeah, can I offer a suggestion you can add to your curriculum? Yeah, of course. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but uh, as we know that uh, the world frowns upon smoking now, and I've noticed in movies, actors you can tell have never really hit a true cigarette because they do not hold them the right way. They don't inhale the right way. So I think on your next historical film, you're going to have to get your actors aside, get some of those clove cigarettes from the uh, department and do a good two hours in the proper way of smoking a cigarette because they hold them in such a weird way. It almost looks like they're holding joints nowadays because, you know, they didn't grow up smoking like we all did or a lot of us did. And so you can really see that in some of these TV shows and movies now. It's like, yeah, they need to focus on that a little bit. It's just this, it's, um, it's the little things. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I never smoke, so I'll have somebody. <laughs> always, <laughs> always, like, we had people like Ross McCall that smoke a cigarette every second. So <laughs> Yep, have him teach them. Right. But, it, it, you know, honestly, even in, 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 as actors, when they have to do a scene, if they even if they've smoked their whole life, all of a sudden that becomes foreign to them, too. So <laughs> it's funny how they all get two left feet. Yeah, that and uh, what it was funny because when we did um, the right stuff, it was originally going to air on Smithsonian and then double over on Disney Plus. And so some of the scenes, like the New Year's Eve scene that I did, and the um, the bar scene I did, we actually had to shoot each thing twice. One where we were smoking for the Smithsonian Network, and one where all the cigarettes are just in the ashtray burning for Disney Plus. And so they actually went that route. And and on some of the scenes, they had us with like the background actors were just hitting on vape pens and then the ones that were actually within scene, they had a smoke in the uh, clove cigarettes. So it had the correct ash and all that, but yeah, even that stuff. I think that kind of depends on, on your actor too, because I mean, you don't want, 
like if you think about maybe say private ryan you don't want up him to look like he's always been smoking because he just picked it up that's you true know, i think that's kind of dependent on you know if it's an 18 year old kid that's never smoked a cigarette and all of a sudden like i smoke now as they're in the amtrak hitting the beach like give me a cigarette uh, it kind of makes sense that he doesn't know what he's doing with us. I think that's kind of dependent too. Yeah, but eight scenes in, where character. it's a two months later and they're battle hardened on that battlefield, he would, <laughs> He'll he would, have it figured he would out, have right? it figured out real quick, <laughs> minus the minus the nerves. But that's gonna wrap it up for this episode of the What's in Your the What's in Your Head the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I have too many podcasts. It starts with W's. But uh, as always, if you want to support the show, please head over to wtspworldwar2.com. Click on that Patreon link. Sign up, like, and subscribe. And uh, we also sell T-shirts, as you can see, uh, myself and Jeff are wearing. And if you don't want to sign up for Patreon, you don't want to buy a T-shirt, that's fine. The best way you can promote the show is simply share us with a like-minded friend who has an interest in World War II-based history. But until we see each other next week, I hope everybody has a great week. And I want to thank, as always, Jeff, Henry, and Freddie for coming on. And we will talk to everybody next week. And I'm trying to do this real cool-like and hit this right here. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>